Okay, well, um, this morning, Pastor, I'm filling in for Pastor Brody. This is a second week, and then next week, David is going to be teaching us from Job 31, correct? Okay. Um, I think Pastor Brody will be back next week. Uh, So continue to pray that they would have uh, safe travels on their way back from the beach. So far, I think they're having a good time. I haven't heard any bad news, so... I haven't heard any news at all, so no news is good news, as they say. Uh, last week, what, did we, what were we talking about last week? What was the topic? Anyone remember? Knowing God. Knowing God. Knowing God. And <clears throat> what was the primary uh, verse that we were drawing from? Anybody remember that? I'll give you a hint. It was in the Old Testament. Major prophet, Jeremiah, that's right. Anybody know the address of that verse? Je- Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. That's it. And we talked about, uh, what did we talk about? Brains, body, and bank account. Wisdom, might, and riches. And not boasting in those things. But uh, the Lord said, let him who boasts, boast in this. That he what? Understands and knows me. So I want to carry on with that theme about knowing God this morning. I made the recommendation last week of, uh, for J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I would highly recommend that if you don't have it. You could probably buy it cheap on Amazon and get it used. You'd probably get it for less than three bucks used. Um, so it's a really helpful book. So it's got a lot of fundamental uh, orthodox theology in it. And uh, it's really some helpful insights about what it means to know God. I want to carry on with that theme this morning uh, and say a few. Th- we're going to be uh, all over the place. There's a, hopefully you'll be able to follow along. I have this handout here um, that we will, Lord willing, get through the entire thing this morning. So how do we come to know God? We talked about the idea of knowing God, but how do we come to know God? And I just wanted to say this, uh, and I think a, a lot of you realize this. It isn't so much that we come to know him, but he comes to know us. He comes to us and he initiates. And not only does he initiate, but he, he completes that transaction of introducing himself to us. He reveals himself to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He, through different circumstances, shows us our sinfulness. That's what happened to me. I don't know about you, but at one point in my life as a senior in high school, the Lord came to me and he showed me my sinfulness. Now, I say he came to me. I didn't have a vision, but he, made, he revealed himself through the word. I heard preaching. I heard about Jesus. I heard about sin. I heard about holiness. I heard about my need for a savior. And something within me told me, that's, that's you. That's you. That's true. And it wasn't really anything within me. It was really something outside of me who was convincing me of that. The person of the Holy Spirit. Um, and before we come to know the Lord, we're busy living for ourselves, right? We're busy living for ourselves, maybe working on our wisdom, our education, uh, maybe working on our bank accounts, maybe doing whatever we need to do in order to get ahead in, in life. And really our eyes are on ourselves uh, until we have that life-changing interaction with God. And then at that point, everything changes, right? Our values change, our priorities change, our interests, 
our attitudes, outlook on life. I remember, I may have shared this with you guys uh, once in the past, but I'll never remember. It's just such a poignant moment for me. Uh, going to school the next morning after uh, praying and asking the, asking the Lord to save me and, and be my Lord and Savior, I was at home. The next morning I got up and went to school. And there was a group of kids that I used to enjoy picking on. I just loved to pick on them. But when I got there, and there they were, I would see them. We, I would go, of course, I went to the band room every morning because, you know, I was a band geek. And um, there they would be there as well. But that, that morning, something was so radically different in my heart. It wasn't in me to, to do what I had always done to them or treat them the way I had always treated them or th- even think about them the way I had, I had always thought about them. And uh, the only reason, and, and I was, honest, honestly, I was dumbfounded. And the only thing I could uh, come up with is at the moment was, you know, something changed in me. I think the Lord changed in me. Something happened last night. Something really happened. And, um, and life has never been the same for me since. So uh, while God does use a wide variety of circumstances to get our attention, his favorite tools are the Word, the Bible, the gospel in particular, the news about what Jesus has done for us. And very often, he uses people, right? Did he use someone in your life to bring you to Christ, to help draw you to himself? More than likely, he did. Maybe he didn't. But very often, you'll find God uses people. God uses people. And there's a, one other massively important component to this this transaction, this life-changing event of coming to know the Lord, and that is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, oft, it's the Holy Spirit who does that secret, unseen, gracious, and really effectual work in our souls in bringing us to the Lord. The Holy Spirit. Um, so I want to take a, a moment to look at a few New Testament examples. Turn your Bibles to Luke 19, and let's read a little bit about Zacchaeus. I'm going to kind of move through these quickly. Uh, Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. He entered Jericho as Jesus and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. Everybody knows Zacchaeus from Sunday school. If you you know, went to Sunday school when you're a kid, you know about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was also a chief tax collector and was rich. He was rich. That's an important detail, I think. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So apparently he had heard the hubbub about Jesus and Jesus was coming into town, coming into Jericho. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For Jesus was about to pass that way. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Wow. Imagine that. You're just kind of hanging out over to the side and Jesus turns to you. You're not looking for this. Like he was not expecting this. And Jesus says, I want to stay at your house today. Hurry up. Come on down. Go get it ready. Imagine how Zacchaeus felt. 
So he hurried, verse 6, and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. That is, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees in that crowd. And they all grumbled, he has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Isn't that beautiful? Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So what happened? Somewhere between verse 5 and verse 6, the Holy Spirit did that unseen work in Zacchaeus' heart. And he went from a chief tax collector who loved money. He was rich, and I promise you he loved every dime of it, to being willing to say, Lord, I give, my, I give half of my goods away to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone. And if there's any doubt as to what had happened, that it, something genuine had happened in his heart, Jesus confirmed it and removed all doubt because he said, today salvation has come to this house. And I think there's a play on words going on there too because Jesus was that salvation. And, it, and G, uh, Zacchaeus was the house that he had entered in a sense, you see. So that's a one, I love that story about, I love seeing these radical changes and how actually the Bible just kind of puts it there, just lays it out for us. Okay, think about Matthew and Luke. We won't read this, but uh, you remember Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, also known as Levi. Jesus was walking along, and he was another tax collector, of course. Jesus called him, and he said three words, come follow me. That's what Jesus said to Matthew, the tax collector. And the response was immediate. Matthew, in Luke uh, 5.27, he says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Tax collectors love money. But Matthew left it all to follow Jesus. Why would he have done that? Why would he have done that? There was something about Jesus, something that happened in his heart in that moment that Jesus called him, and he left it all and followed him. And his life was never the same. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He was going along the road, and he's reading from the scroll, uh, and he's, he's in his chariot, and he's reading uh, the scroll, scroll of Isaiah 53. He had no idea what he was reading. And in a divine appointment, uh, Philip, one of the apostles, came along, and, and the Holy Spirit sent Philip over to this eunuch. And the guy said, he said, what are you reading? And the guy said, I, I, I'm, I don't know what I'm reading. How can I understand if unless someone guides me. And so they sat there and had a Bible study on, math, on Isaiah 53, and Philip began to talk to him about Jesus. And before the encounter was over, they were, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch says to him, there's water, what, could, what prevents me from being baptized? Something happened in his soul, in his heart, at that moment when Philip was talking to him about Jesus. And then there's the Apostle Paul, of course. I mean, Saul in Acts chapter 9, on his way to kill more Christians. Imagine, there's a guy outside who's on his way to come in here and kill us. 
That was the, that was the apostle, well, that was uh, Saul of Tarsus at that time. He's on his way to go kill some Christians and have them thrown in prison. And he encounters Jesus. Out of the blue, unexpectedly, Jesus appears to him. And he, what did he say? Saul, Saul, it is so hard for you to kick against the goats. It's kind of a mysterious word. But there was something going on in Saul's soul. He'd seen Stephen be stoned. He was standing there when Stephen was stoned. And I think as, even though Saul was, had this drive, really a demonic drive in his heart going on to kill these Christians, he thought he was doing God a service. Something was happening in there. I think the Holy Spirit was working in his life. And then when Jesus showed up, that was it. He acknowledged, uh, Paul said, Lord, what would you have me do? And that was it. The rest is history. What makes such a radical change in a person like that besides our gracious God coming to us and drawing us to our, changing us from the inside out? Lydia, I love Lydia's story. Acts chapter 16. Let's take a look at that real quick. Acts chapter 16, Lydia. Verse 11, this is, uh, this is Dr. Luke and Paul and Silas and Timothy on, a, on one of the, their missionary journeys. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there's these, these, these women who were Jews honoring the Sabbath day out by the river praying. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatera, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she was a devout Jew, and she's sitting there with these other ladies worshiping. And they, she overheard Paul and, their, and, and Timothy and Silas there talking to them. And this is the verse I wanted to draw your attention to. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Isn't that a beautiful word? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said, what they were talking, to pay attention to the gospel, to hear it. Not only to hear it, because you don't need your heart open to hear something. You need your heart open to receive it, you see. And that's what, that's what the Lord did. He opened her heart to receive the gospel. And after she was baptized and her household, wow, that was an impactful moment in her life. Not only in her life, but in her household, whatever, whoever that would entail. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She insisted to serve them. So God did a work in this lady's heart. She was, she was not only a converted Jew, she was a devout follower of Christ now. And she wanted to help these disciples along in their missionary journey. That's beautiful. Only because, why? The Lord opened her 
heart. And if you're here this morning as a, as a Christian, a follower of Christ, he's done, that in your, he's done that to you. One way or another, he has opened your heart to receive him. Okay, so uh, then there's the Philippian jailer. You, you can read Acts 16, and, and that's a, an amazing story about the Philippian jailer. Uh, his life changed radically. God saw to it that Paul and Silas were got uh, thrown in prison. Around midnight, they were singing and praying. This jailer happened to be there. He heard what was going on. There's a great earthquake. You know, and the guy's afraid. The jailer's afraid. Oh, no, these guys, my prisoners are going to get free, and, and you know, that's going to cost me my life. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, preemptively take my life uh, so until the Romans do it to me, right? Um, but Paul, what, what happens? Paul said, no, don't do it because we're all still here. And then this guy is totally amazed. Obviously, the Lord had been working in his life. He had heard their prayers. He had heard their singing. He had heard them praying to God. And what does he say to them famously? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul, how did Paul respond? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and all your household. And that's what happened. That night he got saved, he got baptized, and his life was radically different from that point on. So God worked through these what I call divine appointments. Uh, And people's lives were changed forever as they came to to really know the true and living God. And God has done that same kind of work in our lives here. He has done that same work. How we come to know him is, is unique. The circumstances are going to be unique. But the end result is the same. We turn from sin and we turn to Jesus. We turn from living for ourselves to living for him. And that's a beautiful turn. That's the most important turn we'll ever make in this life. And the Bible calls that repentance, really. It's what repentance is. And God did that. You know, Paul talks about in Philippians 3, uh, in Philippians 1, he says, He who began a good work. In you. That's the good work that he began. Anyone remember that song uh, about he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ? I love that song. It's an old worship song. I forget, maybe Don Moen or somebody like that. Um, that's what God did, and that's what he's doing. He started a good work. It starts at the moment of our conversion, really before our conversion, humanly speaking. And he's going to be faithful to complete it. He will be faithful to complete it in you. So let's look at the next thing. I wanted to just point out three things that knowing God will lead to in your life. Three things that God will, knowing God will lead to in your life. The first thing is holiness. When's the last time you thought about holiness? You spent a lot of time thinking about holiness this week? Maybe, maybe not. Um, guaranteed 100%. This is one thing that knowing God will lead to in your life, is holiness. Why is that? Because the Bible tells us that his, his primary goal is to conform us to the image of Christ. And if Jesus is anything, he's holy. You see? Um, Hebrews 1.9 says this about Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. In other words, you're holy. 
Romans 8.29, I'm just going to read through a few, a few verses. I have them listed on your sheet. Uh, Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Peter 4, uh, 1, verse 14 and 15. I love this. This is so clear. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So this really is not a New Testament concept. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, this is a, this is a word, that, that, that a theme that comes up over and over and over again where God tells his people, be holy as I am holy. It's the same theme. It carries over. It doesn't go away with grace. It, 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 grace enables it now. As, as, we're been, uh, as we've been listening to and studying in Romans. Shall we sin now that we're under grace? God forbid. May it never be. You see. As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8, for God, actually that whole chapter, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, into, into holiness, into a life of holiness. Therefore, whoever regards this, this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So I think from the moment we enter the kingdom of God to the day we die, our Heavenly Father is going to put us in a wide variety of circumstances that he will use to make us more like Jesus. In other words, he's using them to make us holy. And this is a, what, what do we call this? What's a, the, the theological term for this? Sanctification, yes, sanctification. And it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. So don't get, don't get anxious, don't get nervous. Just stay in the game. Just stay walking in faith. It involves four things, really. A consistent interaction with the Word. A consistent interaction with the Word. Because the Word is going to show us what holiness looks like. And it's Scripture that shows us what holiness looks like because we don't have the authority to to determine that ourselves. We don't have the, the authority to determine that ourselves. Consistent interaction with the Word. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is really important in the process of, of becoming more like Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts, in our souls, in our consciences. The, the Spirit is going to give us a desire to please God and to say no to ungodly attitudes and actions. How many of you had to say no to an ungodly attitude this week? Right? I mean, every one of us. No question about it. No question about it. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. When and you, you're in that moment, you know, you can feel, you feel that tension, you feel whatever it is, frustration, anger, whatever it might be. And, you know, these, you, you, can, you know all these thoughts are coming to your mind, and it's the Holy Spirit that redirects our thoughts. And he, he, he changes our thoughts, honestly. And he says, no, you know what, you should pray right now. And not only pray for yourself, pray for that person right now. 
Pray for that person that's, that's getting to you, that's, you know. We need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And three, we need prayer. And if prayer does anything, it says to the Lord, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. That's what prayer, prayer is vital in, in the process. And then fellowship with mature believers. That is a key component, as I've already pointed out in our prayer and our praise notes time. Uh, f- fellowship with mature believers is a context where we can find grace and friendship. You need a friend. I need a friend. We need friends. Godly, mature believers who can come alongside us and be there with us. They can give us counsel and they can help hold us accountable. We need that. It doesn't matter how young we are, how old we are, what season of life we're in. You need someone who who can come along and put their arms around you and help you walk through the Christian life and help you fight your battles and bear your burdens and pray for you and pray with you. So that, that, uh, that fellowship with mature believers is extremely important. And in all, you're going to find yourselves in all kind of victories. You're going to find yourselves in defeat. You're going to find yourselves in uncomfortable situations. You're going to find yourself uh, wishing things were a little bit different. You're going to find yourself in hard relationships, suffering of all kinds, mountaintops and valleys in this process. But it's in in all these contexts that God is doing his work in us, revealing himself to us and making us more like the Lord Jesus. That's that's worth it to me. That's being knowing that God is conforming me to the image of Christ is worth the discomforts that come along with that process. It really is. Okay. Holiness. We've got to stay alert for two big pitfalls. Pitfall number one, when we're talking about holiness, the thing, one of the things that God, knowing God will lead us to, is the attempt to define holiness and to be holy based on external standards or man-made rules, you might say. The attempt to define holiness and to be holy based on external standards. It's possible that in our zeal to be holy, and, and if God's done his work in you, you're going to want, your desire is going to be more like Christ. But it's possible that in our zeal to be holy, we end up losing sight of what holiness actually is. The Pharisees made this kind of mistake. The Pharisees made this mistake. They, they started well, but they ended up making the mistake, in the, and they ended up becoming uh, some of Jesus' worst enemies. And in its essence, holiness is really a disposition of our heart, you see, that reflects the character of Christ in our behavior. Which is another way of saying it's, it's, it's the Father making us more like His Son. And it's primarily internal, not firstly external. That is to say, holiness works from the inside out. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Man looks on the outside. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God, what, looks on the heart, you see. Um, It's easy for us as we get started in our journey. And honestly, it can happen at any point along the journey that we start judging the book by its cover. We start um, measuring, trying to measure holiness by external standards. 
And uh, when we do that, our version of, in, of Christianity can end up being defined by what we do or what we don't do. Right? And that can really be, become a, a, an unnecessary barrier for people outside, people who need Jesus. But the problem is they can't get past us. We don't want to be that. No one wants to be that. Um, and that's what happened to the Pharisees. They began to equate holiness with their traditions. Now, if you want to go, this is not really about all that deeply, but if you want to spend some time in Mark 7, you'll see this very clearly in Mark 7. There's this whole idea about, hey, the, the, the Pharisees came along and they're like, hey, Jesus, your disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Oh, boy. And the conversation that ensued was a conversation that ended up not being about dirty hands, but dirty hearts. So I would, I would point you to Mark chapter 7 to carry on with that idea. Um, the last thing we want to do is keep others from coming to Christ because of our man-made rules and expectations. Um, when I was a new Christian, uh, I'll just tell you, I was this way. It, I was one of the most judgmental young believers because, I mean, I, if I, here's one of my big, like, for example, one of my big hangouts was uh, ties. So I didn't think I could come to church without wearing a tie. I didn't think you, I didn't think, you know, I think sometimes I felt as if you couldn't really be a Christian and worship God properly without a tie on. So we came from Texas and uh, we moved to Reston, well, we moved to Northern Virginia and we ended up in a Calvary Chapel of all places. I had never been to a Calvary Chapel before. And I walked in there, and it's like, okay, they do verse by verse through the Bible, and it's all about the Word, and I was all into that. But I got in there, and it's like all these Hawaiian shirts and stuff. <laughs> Somebody, God forbid, this guy was wearing shorts on Sunday morning. It's like, oh, my Lord, what is, what is, what is wrong with these people? That was my mentality. And there I was in my, I mean, I looked like, you know, kind of like we do here sometimes. I, I was wearing my tie and my, my, my thing, and I was like, man, what's going on here? We can't worship God like this. I had a lot of growing to do. I, I, had, I had missing the point big time. And so, um, you know, I, that's just the one thing we got to be careful of. It's so easy in our zeal to be holy and to want to please the Lord, to make up all these little rules that we, that we begin to judge other people by, you know. What the color of your hair? Well, you know, this, we can't eat that. What, listen to that. What, you know, there's, and there's conversation. God cares about that. And that's what we're going to talk about next. But just be careful. Don't keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. The main thing is the gospel. The main thing is we, there's a holy God and we have to deal with him. Every single one of us will have to deal with him. Your neighbors will have to deal with the holy God. Your friends and your family, they're going to have to deal with the holy God. And the conversation is not about whether you have a tie on or not. That's not what the conversation is about. Um, and I had, to, I, had to, I had to, God's word convinced me of that. So, number two, the attempt to misapply grace and ignore God's rule over our daily life choices. So, uh, that's kind of the opposite of, of, of what we're just talking about. We don't want to ignore God's rule over our daily life choices just because we're under grace. God cares about how we live. The Bible doesn't allow us to sit by and live a passive Christian life where we do nothing to pursue holiness. 
where we do nothing and make no effort to live out the clear New Testament standards of normal Christian godliness. Now, I used to, I love to listen to R.C. Sproul. And uh, when he was teaching on the topic of antinomianism, which is against the law, or like no law, you know, just free, free. Um, he would often use this, uh, this phrase. He would say, free from the law, oh, blessed condition. I can sin all I want. And what? Still have remission. That's not the, that is not the cry of a born-again believer. That is not the cry of our hearts. I don't want to be able to, to get as close to the line as I possibly can on every little thing. I want to know God's clear will and walk in that will. I want to, I want to say to the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. It restores my soul. It gives, it gives me light. Um, so if we don't carry around with us a passion to be holy, is our Savior's holy, then you know, maybe it's time we do some soul searching. Maybe God's trying to say, hey son, hey daughter, got some work to do. I'm not done yet. Let's get together and talk about this. Let's deal with this, some of these attitudes. God is holy, and if we truly know God, then he's going to lead us into holiness by his grace. And then um, i got to just breeze through these quickly. The second thing that God is going to, knowing God is going to lead us to is happiness. The people who, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Look at Psalm 32. When you get a chance, Psalm 32, like the first verse and the last verse, it starts with blessed and it ends with rejoice and shout for joy. That is a believer's life in a nutshell. Blessed is the man whose uh, transgressions are forgiven and against whom the Lord counts, does not count iniquity. And then at the end of that Psalm, he's, he's in praise to his God. He's rejoicing. So uh, Christians are to be the happiest people uh, on the planet. In the kingdom of God, a happy life is an obedient life. And uh, we know this. Obedience to Christ will bring joy to your heart. So knowing that we're forgiven and knowing that we live an obedient life to Christ, that is going to bring joy to our hearts. And then finally, um, a third thing I think that knowing God will lead us to is what I call divine appointments. Divine appointments. All, Zacchaeus, that was a divine appointment. Lydia, that's a divine appointment. The Philippian jailer, that's a divine appointment. They weren't, they weren't expecting it. They didn't know what was happening. And, and, and so pray for divine appointments. God uses people. He, he wants to use you. He wants to use every single one of us. Because there's some other people that he's got his eye on. And he wants to use each one of us. I really, really believe this. This is what the Bible, this is the paradigm that the Bible lays out to us. He's going to cross, he's going to work things out in your life where you cross paths with this person, with that person, with that person. It's going to end up being a divine appointment. You may not lead them to Christ. You may not be getting baptized in in five minutes from from then. But God's going to use that in their lives. Um, So pray for divine appointments. Fill your heart and mind with his word and ask him to make you an instrument in his hand. That's what I want to be. Is that what you want to be? I want to be an instrument in his hand.
All right. Okay, well, uh, enough of me. Let's pray. And um, in five minutes or so, we can all just kind of depart and start walking over to the uh, main sanctuary. Thank you all for, for giving me your attention. The past couple of weeks has been a lot of fun. And um, I really appreciate Pastor Brody uh, sharing uh, this opportunity with me. And, uh, and next week, David, it's going to be awesome. And, uh, and you all are wonderful. I just love, I love being here with you all. I love the way you listen, you pay attention. And, uh, so thank you. Our Father, we give you praise. We are, we are so deeply thankful for all you've done for us. You are gracious and you are good and you are holy. And you care about every moment in our lives. You care about everything in our lives, Lord, from the least to the greatest. Uh, and you still love us. And it's not that we so much that we know you as much it is that you know us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep us and you would preserve us and that you would use us for your glory. Lord, we, I, I pray this morning for divine appointments for each one of us this week that we would have a divine appointment with someone, that you would cross our paths with someone in whose life you are working right now. And um, help us, give us the boldness, help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prompting, that we would speak to them about you, that we would bring your word to bear on the situation, whatever, whatever it might be. We ask that you would do that for your glory and their good. And ask, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you all.